Well, we are coming to the end of our series and um, on covenant theology. And let me just, basically what I want to lay before you is our focus for the next two weeks of this study. Sorry. (laughs) We've got this week and next week to... Uh, wrap this study up. Essentially what I want to do is look at the Abrahamic Covenant today and the Mosaic Covenant next week. Now I say this, and I've already said this, the thrust and central kind of overall theme and, and, and thesis of this series we've already covered. And so these are kind of just bookends Uh, for me to demonstrate to you how these covenants fit into what we've already considered. And of course, because they're covenants where there's a lot of controversy, I want to leave these uh, next to to this week and next week for us uh, to answer any questions you might have regarding how they fit into God's plan of redemption. But this is what we're doing. And then Beginning June 3rd, I'm going to begin a brief series on biblical wisdom, what it is and how to find it. I think we'll probably take three weeks, maybe four at the most, uh, to look at that. And that will kind of transition into something more specific. I've got some, thank you, um, in the fall. But this is what we're doing. We're going to look at these two covenants. And just to recap where we've come from. I've argued that covenant theology is the framework for God's, of God's redemption. We study the covenants in Scripture. They reveal to us the details of how God structures human history, how His plan of salvation is promised and accomplished in human history. And we began by looking at the covenant of redemption that covenant made between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit before the world was made to save a people. We looked at the covenant of works, which was the way in which this world was created, with Adam being under a covenant of obedience, and of course falling into sin, falling from that covenant, and experiencing the curse of that covenant, which explains so much about the world today. And then we looked at the covenant of grace, how God, in response to Adam's sin, promised a Savior to come and in due time sent the Lord Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation. Last week we took an excursus to think about the Noahic covenant. It doesn't fit quite the same way into the framework for God's redemption, not like the covenant of works and covenant of grace do, but we considered it as a common grace covenant. It's a covenant that God made with all people and even with the created order. Everyone can see the rainbow, that's the covenant sign. God made these with all people regardless of religious status, regardless of their good or evil But he made this in order to preserve the world and provide the arena for the accomplishment of the covenant of grace. That's what we looked at last week. Covenant of common grace 
and how this preserves the world so that God can accomplish His purposes in the covenant of grace. That's where we've come from today, the Abrahamic covenant. I want to look at the Abrahamic covenant, not in detail, because if we did that, it would take six weeks. But I want to look at it through the lens of the big picture, the framework for God's redemption, and what I've already struggled to demonstrate to you. The progressive revelation of the covenant of grace. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Whoops, there we go. That's what we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant through that lens. So what do I mean by that? Well, here, let me recap our confession and its teaching on covenant theology. Chapter 7, verse 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He has been pleased to express by way of covenant. That's our overall thesis. Not only is there a difference between us and our Creator, but sin has further divided us from our Creator. And we could never have attained the reward of life. We could have never attained eternal life unless God comes down to us. How has God come down to us? Well, in the broadest sense, He's come down to us by way of covenant. All right, so we're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant through that lens. But then, the very next paragraph of our confession. Man, having, been brought him, having brought himself under the curse of the law, this deals with the breaking of the covenant of works. Man fell under the curse of the law because he broke the covenant of works. In response, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. So again, we saw before the framework, now we see this promise in light of the curse that man has brought himself under. And then the very next paragraph. This covenant, what covenant is that? Well, this right here. A covenant of grace. This covenant of grace, this covenant of life, promising life and requiring faith in Jesus Christ, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. Gospel of Jesus' life and death and resurrection reveal to us God's covenant to save us. It is revealed first to Adam, though, in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. He will crush your head. 
excuse me, the seed will crush Satan's head. Satan will bruise his heel. So it's revealed first to Adam and then afterwards by farther steps. So there's a progression, right? Until the full discovery is completed in the New Testament. And that is founded on the eternal transaction, the covenant of redemption. And it is through, alone, by the grace of this covenant, that all the posterity of fallen Adam, every human falling, uh, every human who shares in, this, in sin and guilt of Adam, were ever saved and granted life and immortality. That's the big picture. Now, I want to look at how the Abrahamic covenant does this. Is that clear? How does the Abrahamic covenant announce, promise, prepare, and typify the redemptive plan of God in the gospel? How is it... um, Reveal by farther steps. Add a little bit of info until the accomplishment of such in the gospel. That's what I want to look at. So, here, let's begin. I'm going to ask a few of you guys to read. Let's begin with a historical situation of at Abraham's time. Um, someone would turn and read Joshua 24, 1-3. Loud and clear. Thank you. Joshua here, recounting history. What does he say? Abraham served other gods. Abraham, before God came to him and appeared to him, was an idolater and a pagan, just like everyone else in the world. It's actually a number of passages that show us that. And our best estimate, based upon the text, is that he lived as a worshiper of the foreign gods and a pagan. He lived that way for 75 years. He was 75 years old when, before God came to him. Well, let's now look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Somebody else, please turn to there and read it loud and clear. Go ahead. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make you 
your name through it, so that you will be, be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Thank you. That's supposed to say nothing. Sorry about that. Typo. Though nothing in Abraham merited God's grace and favor, he was an idolater worshiping the sun and the moon. But in verse 1 of chapter 12, God comes and speaks to him out of his sovereign grace and mercy and unilaterally unilaterally promises to bless him and make his name great and to make a great nation out of him. This is kind of illustrative of God's effectual call in election. It serves as a pattern. It repeats itself in Scripture. And of course, in the New Testament, we see it in most explicit detail. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We can do nothing to earn God's favor. There is nothing in us that commends us to God. If we are in Christ, if we believe, if we have the Holy Spirit, it is because God appeared to us out of nowhere and said, I'm going to bless you. That's not our main focus. I just want to draw your attention to the promises here. I just mentioned them before. We see that God promises these things. A great nation is going to come for you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to be, you are going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is the covenant that God makes with him. The beginning of such in Genesis chapter 12. Although at Genesis 12, it's not yet a covenant. Turn then to Genesis 15. The promises that God had just revealed are now formalized. Just look there. I'm gonna, we won't read the whole passage, but I'll point out a few things. God comes to Abraham says to him, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Very similar language to what we just read in Genesis 12. But then look, there's more details given. Before it was, in you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Here, God gets more specific. In verse 5, look towards the heaven, Abraham, number the stars if you're able so shall your offspring be. This is what I mean, Abraham, or Abram, when I say that in you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, because you're going to have offspring that no man can number. And there's this key verse in verse 6. Abram believed the Lord and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord, was justified, we, we see later in Scripture. And then in verse 7 through 21, the rest of the chapter, we see that God cuts an, 
covenant with Abraham. He formalizes these things. Abraham, uh, excuse me, Abram, keep making that mistake here. <laughs> um, Abram um, falls into a deep sleep. There are animals that are essentially cut in two and God passes through the pieces. It's a symbolic way, very popular in that day. It would have been like drawing up a legal document in our day, something we do, whether it's a will, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a business arrangement. Uh, Well, this was something that was very popular in that day, in that ancient Near East. Cut animals, walk through the pieces. It symbolizes a commitment and the fact that if you broke the terms of that covenant, of that agreement, uh, then you would be torn into like the pieces of the animal. But God walks through the pieces, not Abram, symbolizing that God is taking upon himself alone all the promises of this covenant. Abram received it all as a promise. There are no curses in this covenant if Abraham fails to obey. Does that make sense? Well, then a little bit further in Genesis 17, God completes this covenantal work and gives him the sign of the covenant circumcision. We see in verse 5, changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And in verse 7 and 8, he says, I will establish my covenant with you. It's given explicit covenantal language. And here, the details of what was further promised previously are revealed. My covenant is between you and your offspring. To be your God and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. So, it's important that we see Genesis 12, 15, and 17 essentially as one covenantal transaction. One covenant, one big promise. It is given, God speaks in very broad categories and then further along gives more and more information. Questions at this point? Trent? Um, Abraham means father of many nations, I believe. Father of a multitude, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's just, it's just like an add-on to your name kind of thing. You know, it'd be from Trent to Trent Ham, you know, like Trent, which could mean whatever, but this now means you're the father of a multitude. I do not, no. Probably something pagan. Named... They were named after pagan and foreign gods. I could be completely wrong there, so <laughs> don't quote me on that, even though it's on sermon audio now. Our, 
I think there's an analogy there, but I don't think it's intentional that way. He doesn't do that with David or with Moses. Um, I'm not really sure why. I don't know if I can answer at this point why God does this in stages to Abram. But there is a lot of blood spilt over whether this is one or two covenantal transactions. And, um, most see it as one. A number of Reformed theologians see it as two. The implications and ramifications are not significant. Um, except maybe when you get to Genesis 17 here because of that's when circumcision comes in. And of course we know how people understand circumcision and its relation to baptism. That's a huge dividing line. But I don't see necessarily, uh, necessarily impl- implications either way. It's easier to make a Baptist argument if you say that Genesis 17 is a separate covenant. And I'll show you why in a minute. But I don't think that it, it's really important that way, either way. So let's, let's make sense of this. Um, again, I've already mentioned there's a progression of God's dealing with broad promises to further specifics and then finally formalizing it in a covenant. What's important in this, very important point, in fact, these next two points are very important. Abraham was justified at least 13 years before he was given the sign of circumcision. Some rabbis estimate that it was 29 years. As many as 29 years. But our best evidence that we have from Scripture, at least 13 years before he was given the sign of circumcision. Of course, I'm going to make the argument, and you'll see in a moment, that means that circumcision is not tied to justification. It's not tied to the covenant of grace. To uphold infant baptism, you have to tie circumcision to the covenant of grace. We argue that it's not tied to to his justification because it came 13 years later. But again, Kim, this gets back at that, okay, is this one covenant or two? And obviously you can see how, let's make some arguments here either way. If it's one covenant, then it doesn't matter how long it came before circumcision. If it's two, it's easier to separate. I don't see it that way. I, I think the text in Romans we'll turn to in a minute is clear that it, it circumcision is not related to justification, whether or not it's part of one covenant or two. Other important point, the promise of a people, the blessing to your offspring, and the promise of the land of Canaan are both called everlasting. Forever. And they go together as part of this covenant. Now, I'm going to open up a can of worms here. But everlasting can also mean just a really long time. The Noahic covenant is called everlasting. It doesn't mean forever, because we know the earth and its elements will burn up. The Mosaic covenant is called everlasting, but we know it passed away. What was that? I'm sorry. Sustain the created order. The Mosaic Covenant is called everlasting. 
I'm going to break that down in a minute. But I just want you to note that for right now. I'm going to return to that in just a minute. I want you to see that there are covenant... The covenant promises stand or fall together, essentially. They go together. So, all right, so we see a progression. We see this justification. We see these promises. And here, it's important that we note that the Abrahamic covenant entails a two-level fulfillment. An earthly fulfillment and a spiritual fulfillment. All right? The earthly fulfillment is that it gave Israel a national identity. It set them apart as a nation. Circumcision is what distinguished them from every other nation on the earth. You can even see it in the New Testament. Abraham is our father. All this talk about Abraham. Being their father, Abraham, don't tell me that you're children of Abraham if you come to be baptized. Bear fruit of, worthy of repentance, John the Baptist says. Things of that nature. This national identity, it gave them this distinction as Israelites, as Jews, as children in the genealogical ethnic line of Abraham. This is the first level fulfillment. You were automatically born into the covenant by descent. This is, as we'll talk about in a moment, basis for infant baptism. But you were born into the promises given to Abraham by who your parents were. If you were in the ethnic line of Abraham. This covenant with Abraham created a people, Israel, and a place, this land of Canaan. A people and a place. You see the recovery of what was lost in the fall beginning here? Adam and Eve were God's people in God's place, under God's rule. To use Graham Goldsworthy's famous categories. Abraham started... The typological recreation of that. The people of God in the place of God under the Mosaic law. The rule of God. Alright? This is the first level fulfillment here. But there's also a spiritual identity that came from this covenant. We see this in the New Testament. Galatians 3, 8-9. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Remember we just read, And you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Those who are of faith share in that blessing that God spoke of. The conclusion of this at the end of the chapter, Galatians 3, 28 through 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, 
Male or female, you are all one in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You're heirs according to the promise given to Abraham back in Genesis. Through faith in Christ. Trent? Israel was called to be a blessing to the nations. Okay, but so that was a national identity. Yes. For all the nations. Mm-hmm. How, like, how were they to be blessed? Say, say that again. How were they to be blessed? All the rest how of were they to be blessed or the nations to be blessed? How were the, nations to be blessed? the nations were to be blessed to see that God dwells in their midst um, of Israel, and they were to be um, the light of the world. They were to be the, vine, the vine in God's vineyard. They were to be. A witness in every respect. There could be an example, right? An example, absolutely, yes. You have all the shalom because we're following the rules, you And the fulfillment of that is really seen like when the Queen of Sheba, it, it, come, it reaches its pinnacle at Solomon. Because all the nations are coming and trading with Solomon and with Israel, and they're blessed. Oh, Solomon, you are the epitome of wisdom, and people come from all the ends of the earth and are blessed by the wisdom and the grace and, you know, the, the blessing of Israel. Good question. Now, I wish I could just break down Galatians 3 for you <laughs> uh, to show why, you know, Paul is saying right here, doesn't matter who you're born from. Doesn't matter who your parents are. That's my whole point. You're one in Christ through faith, not through anything else. That's how you. That's how you become part of Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Not because you're Christian. Your parents are Christians. But I digress. It is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Galatians three seven. You want part of this promise. You want to be part of this covenant. Faith in Christ, Paul says, is the means by which. Hmm. Looks like I've already said this. Sorry, double slide here. We also see this spiritual identity detail in Romans 4. Paul is saying stuff like, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Don't you understand why the law was given? Don't you understand what God's purposes were? And so he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? Remember, we talked about how there's this identity given to those who are circumcised. And how I made the point as a Baptist... That justification and circumcision are distinct. Well, I make that point because I believe that's what Paul is saying. Is this blessing for the circumcised, is it not only for the uncircumcised? Well, Paul, how can you prove this? Well, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How was it then counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. 
but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So this sign of circumcision was given 13 years later and it sealed the righteousness that he had when he believed God. And why did God give that sign? The purpose, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the uncircumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Again, I'm not going to go into the detail here, but this is fundamental for the doctrine of infant baptism. When we talk about, when they talk about how circumcision and baptism fulfill the same purpose, and that circumcision was a seal to the righteousness. The Westminster Confession speaks of circumcision and baptism as a seal of the covenant of grace. But we come back and we say, no, this was given to an adult, not an infant. This was given to someone who was justified. And the purpose of it given to Abraham was so that from the scriptures we might see, it doesn't matter if you come from Israel or not. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. The matter is, are you sharing in the faith that Abraham shared in, that is the fulfillment of this promise. Summary here. Anybody have questions at this point? Somehow they quickly disappear from the pages of the history of the faith. So there's sort of this odd thing physically of Abraham and yet see that little bit nothing to do with the people of faith. Turn to Galatians 4. I don't have this in my notes, but John's excellent observation deserves a look at Scripture. Galatians 4, verse 21. The question that Paul is dealing with here is the Galatians who desired, who said, you know what, if you really want to be saved, Jesus is great, but you've got to be circumcised and obey the law. That's the only way you can be saved. So he says in verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by a slave, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Now, stop for a second there. This is what I'm arguing. A spiritual and a physical identity, essentially that can be called two covenants. 
One is from Mount Sinai. The physical led to the nation of Israel and the giving of the law. Bearing fruit, children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds with the present Jerusalem. The Jews who do not believe in Jesus. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem from above is free and she is our mother. And he goes down and he says, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that, time, at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also is it now. But the slave woman and her son will be cast out, and they shall not inherit. But we are not children of the slave, but of the free. This is where we argue that there are two aspects to the Abrahamic covenant One bore fruit to slavery. That was the physical nation of Israel. The other promised and prepared for the Messiah. That is the Jerusalem from above. We must distinguish these two and not mix them together if we are to rightly interpret this covenant and its place in the covenant of grace. I'm going to explain that more in just a moment, what I just said, but... That scripture passage to back it up. i got to really hurry. Alright, so, Abraham is our spiritual father. He's the God of the Gentiles. He was justified before his circumcision. And it was done so uh, to show that it would, could not be based on his relationship with God. Abraham is also the father of Israel and brought earthly promises and blessings as well. The Abrahamic covenant announces, in this sense, the redemptive plan of God. Remember, this goes back to my original kind of thesis. How does it reveal by farther steps the plan of God in the covenant of grace? Well, it announces it through the sovereign call of Abraham. This is grace. Through the promise of blessing and reward. Through this specific seed, this offspring of the woman, that will come from his loins. It also promises, so it announces, but it also promises. It seals these things with a covenant and a covenant sign. And it also prepares. It lays the groundwork for the Messiah to come. It's the things that the Abrahamic covenant does. And it also typifies, I spoke about this already, a people in a place mirroring Eden, of course typifying what is, will be true in eternity in heaven, God's people in God's place under His rule. It typifies the, the royal line, the blessing comes through the royal line, then we see this fulfillment in children who are born of God, born by the Spirit. And so in this sense, Nehemiah Cox says this, Abraham is to be considered in a double capacity. He is the father of all true believers, And he is the father and root of the Israelite nation. God entered into covenant with him for both of these seeds. And since they are formally distinguished from one another, their covenant interests must necessarily be different and fall under distinct consideration. The blessings appropriate to either must be conveyed in a way agreeable to their peculiar and respective covenant interest. And these things may not be confounded without a manifest hazard to the most 
important articles in the Christian religion. The Judaizers of Galatians being one who confounded these things. Dual capacity. Type and shadow. Promise and fulfillment. So in this, I just want to circle back around to what I mentioned earlier. And I've got like three minutes. Part of this covenant that remains the battleground today. Why it's so divisive. Because God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. If you fail to look at this through the dual level fulfillment, you're going to make one of two mistakes. Presbyterianism in the Westminster Confession confuses and mixes the physical with the spiritual in verse 7. Because this is their basis for saying, God promises to be a God to you and your children. That means that continues today. And that's why we ought to baptize the children of believers. But dispensationalism does the very same thing in verse 8. I give you the land of Canaan. And they say, the land of Israel is still Israel's. And God is going to come back and rescue that nation, which is why they have doctrines of the Antichrist and they read the newspaper and see what's going on in Israel and they see persecution of Israel as persecution of Christians and they say well you see if you bless Israel you'll be blessed if you curse Israel you'll be you'll be cursed and they take that to mean the nation of Israel even down to today but what's funny is although they used to there aren't many who take both one way or the other one way anymore. You don't find Presbyterians anymore who say we ought to reclaim the land back from Israel, and we don't find dispensationals who believe in infant baptism. It's just very rare. I believe the best answer is from a Baptist perspective. These blessings were for a physical nation of Israel that have now given way to a spiritual and physical reality. Thus, we can't take the promise to children in a physical manner anymore, and we can't take the land in a physical manner anymore. These things typified the land given in the new creation and the promise to your offspring that is given in Jesus Christ. And thus, the Abrahamic covenant seen in this manner is a progressive step in God's revelation of his plan of salvation, but it is not in itself that plan. It could only typify, point to, and prepare for that plan. It was not sufficient in and of itself. The temporal, physical aspects give way to the spiritual. It had an end point, 
It had a consummation. It had a fulfillment, which is Paul's entire argument in Galatians 3. Don't you see that what was promised to Abraham doesn't continue? No, it's come. It's come in Christ. Don't go back to that old revelation. Christ is the point of it all. And even in Galatians 3.16, he says, quoting the promise to Abraham's offspring, right? Now to the promises, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. That's our Reformed Baptist doctrine of covenant of the Abrahamic covenant. The promise to you and your children was a promise, as Paul says very explicitly, not to baptize your infants if you're a believer, but it was a promise that consummated and was fulfilled in the coming of Christ. That's who God was speaking of when he says, I will be a God to you and your children. I got through a whole lot there. Are there any questions or comments? I know I opened a can of worms in some respect for some of you. I hate that we only have a short time. I just want to give you a Baptist argument, all right? I don't want to browbeat anybody. Just This is what we believe, okay? If I was to fully answer every objection, it would take eight weeks, but I'm not doing that. Are there any questions or comments?